Wow! Good morning, nine o'clock. Great to see you. Um, my name's Michael, and I'm one of the pastors here. And I uh, want to welcome you, whether you're here in our worship center or in, in the Ridge. Uh, welcome you in now. That um, good, great to be with you. Uh, uh, before we go into uh, our teaching today, uh, I've got one important announcement, and it has to do with winter life groups. All right. So I, I realize that we're almost to Christmas. And in about three days, I'm going to lose your attention for the next two weeks. So before we hit Christmas, uh, I want to get you thinking about the new year. Are you guys excited about the new year? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I am too. And we want to hit it, uh, hit it strong. And so um, our, our winter life groups are going to kick off uh, the kind of the second full week of it's uh, January 13th, that week of the 13th. But the, the reason I'm making the announcement is this year we're doing something very special like we did last year. Uh, how many of you were here last year when we kicked off the year with Rooted? Do you remember that? Yeah, it was an amazing time for our church. And one of the things that made it so special was not only did we do a, a new series called Rooted, but we actually uh, kind of went through a five-day-a-week study on our own. You may remember that in your personal one-on-one -on -one time. And then we, we all of our life groups went through the same thing. So we used what we call our three-legged stool approach here. Large groups, uh, weekend services, small groups, life groups, and our one-on-one -on -one time, personal time with God, all doing the same thing. And so we're going to be doing that again in our next series, which is called Loving People, Doing Relationships a Whole New Way, which is very much designed to be a follow-up on this series of the gospel. And so we're very excited about that. I sent out a ministry update letter on Friday, uh, an email, you should have received that. So if you didn't, uh, go you know check your junk mail and see all the other pastors, um, all the other letters from <laughs> Pastor Michael there. Uh, pull out the most recent one. Be sure to read it because there's some details that you'll need to know. Like in particular, uh, one of the things we're doing for this is this, the five-day week study that a lot of that will be based on excerpts from a couple books that we're going to be reading. So you're going to need either a hard copy, a digital copy, or an audio version of those. And so we'll have them here uh, on sale kind of at our cost to make it easy, but you can also get them online, whatever you want to do. Um, and so you can, do, you can use the, this five-day week, week study. You can either do it for your time with God, your personal time, or if you want to do it another time, that's fine either. But either way, uh, our life groups will be based on the weekend uh, the discussion, the, the weekend messages, and then this five-day week study. And so I just want to make sure you're all really clear on that before we go into the Christmas, uh, Christmas rush, um, because we're very excited. We feel like kind of our next step of, uh, of uh, transformation as a church. Uh, very excited about it. I hope that, that you all jump. If you're already in a life group, that's fantastic. But if you haven't yet signed up for a life group, then signups will start the first weekend in January. And that week before that, we will send you an email on how to find the right groups. I don't know how many groups we'll have. I'm guessing 150, 170, something like that. So there'll be groups for you to join in the four valleys that we serve. And so especially if you're new here at Rocky Peak, I want to get you kind of geared up for that, ready to go. Sound good? Yeah. All right, great. So we're going to go into our time of teaching now. And so inside your program is a green and white message note sheet we use every week. But if you're new, you may not know that. And so you want to pull that out. And if you're ready, I'm ready to jump in. You ready to go? Yeah. All right, let's pray. 
God, we're just excited to be here uh, in your house, uh, in your place, underneath your name, underneath your leadership. Lord, we just acknowledge that the Holy Spirit's in the house and that we are here. You promised that you would send the comforter, you would send the counselor to be our teacher, that he would lead us and guide us into all truth, that he'd bring to mind the things that you had spoken. And so today, Lord, we call upon your spirit to come and be our teacher. The spirit of King Jesus would be, be here, be present. You would be here. You'd be speaking through your word in powerful ways as we talk today about what it looks like to join with you and take classes in this school of contentment. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, our story starts today outside of Rome. And he is sitting in, a, in his vast and beautiful villa outside of Rome. It's one of the largest uh, in the area. He's one of the, the wealthiest, uh, most influential, famous man of his era. And uh, as he sits there, he's writing a letter, uh, a letter that will later become famous. Um, and around him are servants and the walls are covered with frescoes, mosaics everywhere, beautiful uh, uh, landscaping, beautiful architecture, one of the wealthiest men in the empire. And yet his story doesn't start off in Rome. His story starts off in what today would be known as southern Spain. He was born into a very wealthy family, a respected family. His father was a, a, a well-known writer, order, author. Uh, his two brothers will go on to have their, their own names. Uh, we, we still talk about them today. They're still known today. Um, and so when he's young, he will be moved to Rome to study in one of the most prestigious schools of his day, to study oratory, to study philosophy. And he excels. He's at the top of his class. And by the time he moves into manhood, he, he goes into politics and he just excels there. In fact, by the time he's in his 40s, he'll be recruited by the emperor to become the tutor for his uh, stepson, who will later become one of the most famous or infamous emperors in Roman history. And towards the end of his life, he has become truly one of the wealthiest men in the empire, one of the most influential and respected men and philosophers in the empire. But as he sits at his via, as we watch him there, surrounded by servants in this beautiful setting, little does he know that within three months, his life is going to take a tragic turn, and he is going to come to a sudden painful end. Well, today, we are continuing our series. Um, it's called The Gospel. And if you're brand new, I want to welcome you. We're so glad you're here. Um, this is a series that's based on a letter. It's a letter from a man that we call the Apostle Paul. He's one of the leaders of the early movement of Jesus. And about 10, 12 years before, uh, he had traveled to an area in, uh, in modern-day Greece. It was an important Roman city called Philippi. And he had shared the message of Jesus, and some people had come to Jesus. And now it's 8, 10 years later, and he's writing them a letter. And the reason we're calling this series the gospel 
is because in this letter, more than any other letter, at least per page, per paragraph, per word, he uses the gospel more proportionally in this letter than any of his other 13 letters. But as we've seen throughout this series, that his focus in this series, uh, in this letter, and when he talks about the gospel, is not so much on the content of the gospel, though as we've seen throughout the series, it's so much bigger, brighter, bolder, richer, higher, deeper, fuller than we've often understood. But his message is not primarily on the, on the content of the gospel, gospel, but on the implications of the gospel. What does it look like to live as a follower of Jesus, to live out the gospel, um, to live a life the way Paul would put it, to live a life that's worthy of the gospel. And today we come to, uh, we're coming down the home stretch. This is kind of only two more messages in the series, this one and the last one right after Christmas. And we're coming down the home stretch. We're in the final chapter. And today we come to one of the most famous uh, passages, one of the biggest promises, well-known promises in all the Bible. But, it's, 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 uh, but Paul makes his promise, gives us his promise in the context of thanking the Philippians for a recent gift. So there in your note sheet, there's a section that's called the gospel, the generous gift. And if you have your Bibles, you have your apps, I'd like you to open up with me to uh, turn to Philippians chapter 4. We'll pick it up at verse 10. Now, before we jump in to this short passage today, uh, I, w- I need to set it up. So uh, some of you, I won't ask for a show of hands, but some of you were here uh, when we started this series back in 1984. Uh, <laughs> no, we started back in September. And if you were, you may remember the second message in, we, we launched into the, the heart of the message. And uh, we came to this verse in chapter 1 and verse 4. I put it there in your note sheet. I know it's 9 o'clock. I don't want to have you, have you turn. So uh, in all our prayers uh, for all of you, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. I just, you always bring joy to me. You see, because of your what? Your partnership in the gospel. And notice from the first day, like 18 years ago or 10, 12 years ago when I, when I led you to the Lord, from the first day until now. And so if you were here that first day, we, or, or that second week of the series, we talked about this word partnership. Does anyone remember what this word was? That was really depressing. Like, I think I heard one person over here. Koinonia, good, 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 yeah. It's the word koinonia. And it's the first time we encountered the word. And so we learned this is a very important word for the Apostle Paul. It's a word that speaks of our sharing, uh, like a very deep sharing. Uh, of a communion, of fellowship, of uh, like a, the organic unity that we share as followers of Jesus. You have the Spirit, I have the Spirit. We share in the Spirit, and because of that, we have this koinonia that we fellowship, that we share. It's an organic fellowship through the, the very real presence of the Holy Spirit. But what we also saw is that sometimes the Apostle Paul will use this word koinonia to talk about the uh, financial sharing that comes out of our love for one another, that we share with one another during hard times. And so that's how he's using it here. And so he says, in all my prayers for you, I always pray the joy because of your partnership in the gospel. So one of the ways they had shared in the gospel is that over the years, they had often sent 
the Apostle Paul financial gift in order to support his ministry and in order to, uh, to advance the gospel. And as we'll see today, that for whatever reason, remember Paul's in prison in Rome, for whatever reason, uh, it's been a long time since they've been able to send him a financial gift. And we don't really know why. He's going to make the comment. He's going to say, I know that you have, you, uh, you've, he said, I know it's like you haven't forgotten about me. It's not because of lack of concern. But he said, he's going to say, but you had no opportunity. And we don't really know what that means. It may just be a logistical issue. Remember, he's 850 miles away in a day when there is no Amazon, there's no UPS, there's no bank transfers. Um, you know, there's, there's nothing like that. So uh, in a day and age where travel was hard to send a large amount of money, 850 miles was not easy. It may have just been the logistical challenge of that. Um, but um, it may have been something more than that. It may have been uh, what we're going to learn today is one of the things we've seen throughout Philippians is that these believers are under persecution, right? They're suffering like Paul. And uh, in one of his previous letters called 2 Corinthians, we learned that the, the believers in Macedonia, which is the province where uh, Philippi is located, that those believers are really suffering financially because of their, partner, because of their following Jesus, that they're because of persecution. So it may be that they just haven't had the funds to actually send him, that they're just scraping by. We're not really sure, but for whatever reason, uh, it's been a while. And so when Paul gets this gift, he is so thankful for it. But as he's going to say, it's not just because he takes care of his needs in prison. Remember, in a Roman prison, you, you have to provide your own food and supplies and things like that. Not only, but, but the main reason he loves, he's so thankful for this gift is because of what it means. You know, in a few days, we're going to have Christmas, right? In 10 days, we're going to have Christmas and some of you as parents, grandparents, aunts, and uncles, you're going to get very odd little gifts <laughs> from very little people, <laughs> right? They're the kind of gifts that if you didn't know who gave them to you or why, you would throw them in the trash immediately. <laughs> but because you know your granddaughter or your, uh, your son or your daughter or your nephew or your uh, niece, because you know them, they take on great meaning. And you know, it was made with care and it was made with love. So the gift becomes important, not just for the gift, but for what the gift signifies. Are you with me? And what Paul's going to say today is, I was so excited about the gift, not so much for the gift, but because of what it signifies. What it shows about your love for me, this tremendous thing. You sent one of your top leaders 850 miles. That it shows your love for me. It shows your love for Jesus. It shows for your passion to help me advance the gospel. Right? And in the midst of that context, he's going to make some amazing statements today about the secret of contentment and the power and, and uh, the power of the promise that whatever life throws at us, God can equip us to meet. Amen. And so let's see what he says. So chapter four and verse 10, he says, uh, by the way, so you know, he started by thanking him for this gift, right? I'm so thankful for this rejoice. I'm rejoicing in my prayers because of this great gift. That was chapter one. Then he leaves the topic for three chapters. 
And now in chapter 4, at the very end of the letter, so he starts with it, and he's going to end with it. As he's wrapping up his letter, he's thanking them now for this gift. And so he says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. In the Greek, that word greatly is a word that's it's called megalos. And you can hear in that the word mega. And so this is, it's like I'm mega excited, you know? Like I, I am really, really rejoicing in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. So it's been a while. He said, indeed, you were concerned. He said, I know that you, you didn't forget about me, but he said you had no opportunity for whatever reason like to show it. He said, now, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. That's not why I'm so excited. You know, it's like, oh, man, I'm just starving here and I got your food. Um, he said, I'm not saying because, then he says, because I've learned to be what? Now, this is a powerful word. We're going to come back to it later. But I've learned to be content whatever the all right, so, so Paul says that there is a way to be content regardless of circumstances. Amen. Amen. Interesting. Amen. By content, let me define that. I, I don't mean that when you're content, it doesn't mean you don't want anything to change. Like when you're in a Roman prison, chained to two guards, being content is like, oh, I'm so happy, I'll stay here the rest of my life. But what it means is there's a peace, there's a satisfaction, there's a fulfillment, there's a joy that even in the midst of hard times, you're okay. So he said, I've learned to be content. He said, verse 12, he said, I know what it is to be in need. He says, just looking at my life and, and think of what the Apostle Paul, all he's gone through here. If you've ever read 1 Corinthians like uh, 11 and 12, which is sort of this long list of everything Paul's gone through. And that was like eight years before this letter. You know, I've been shipwrecked. I've been beaten this many times. I've been in prison. I've been hungry. I've been sleepless. You know, all this long litany. Um, And so he says, but I've learned, he said, uh, I know what it is to be in need. And in the Greek, it, it literally says, I know what it is to be humbled or to be poor. He said, I know what it is to be very poor, and he'll define poor in just a minute. Um, and I know what it is to, be, to, pl- to have plenty, in the Greek, to abound, to have everything you need. He said, I, but I catch this, I've learned the what? Secret. The secret. Isn't that interesting? I've learned this, there's a secret. Um, this is where they got the title for that book a few years ago. No, just kidding. <laughs> um, I've learned the secret of being, what's the word again? Content. Content. There's a secret. In any and every situation. Huh. I want to know that secret. You? I'd like to learn that. We'll talk more about that later. I'm still in the process of learning that, by the way. Uh, Whether well-fed or hungry. Do any of you remember Maslow's hierarchy of needs from school? The seven hierarchy of needs. And the first one is your physical needs. You know, you can't be... You can't kind of think about higher needs until you have the basic needs. And Paul goes right to the basics. He says, when I'm talking about being poor, he says, I know what it is to be hungry. Um, And I also know what it is to be well-fed, whether whether living in plenty or want. So he's using this as sort of a, a metaphor to talk about, hey, I, I've known the upsides and I've known the downsides. There's times when I'm blessed. There's times I'm going through really hard times. And then he gives this amazing 
statement that's really a statement of his experience, but I believe a promise as well, that I can do all this through him who, what? Gives me strength. All right, so, so an amazing, um, amazing passage in, in the context of this gift, but he does this great teaching about the secret of contentment and the power of this promise. And so what I want to talk to you today, I uh, want us to talk about today as we unpack this together, is there in your note sheet, there's a section called the gospel, the secret and the promise. Now, the secret of contentment, the promise of power, the secret and the promise. And so it's going to jump in. So number one, um, as we talk about the secret that Paul identifies today, the first thing I think we need, to, we need to start with is kind of the most obvious, and yet it's so important we start here and build the base, is that the secret is spiritual. That Paul says there is a way to be content, to be at peace, to find joy, uh, to be okay in whatever life throws at you, but the secret doesn't lie in your circumstance. The secret to contentment lies in certain spiritual realities. It's, it's not, the secret is not physical circumstance, it's spiritual realities. Now, this is interesting. Um, in fact, we, we saw this, maybe we'll look at this real quick, in 4.11 again. Uh, he says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstance, circumstance right? So, so this kind of is not about circumstance, physical service about spiritual realities. Now, this is interesting because I think as fallen people, right, uh, I struggle with this, you struggle with this, that we tend to look for our contentment in our circumstance, right? We tend to think, if only, if only I could get this job, if only I could buy a house, if only we could move to Idaho. <laughs> if only I could get married. If only I wasn't married. <laughs> if only I had kids. If only the kids would leave. <laughs> like we naturally gravitate towards the if onlys. If only life was, would change and be like this. If only my boss would drop dead tomorrow. In Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. <laughs> uh, Neil Johnson just said amen. So, uh, <laughs> Many of you know Neil. He used to work here. Uh, Right? But we live our life in the if-onlys. I will be happy when. And Paul says, no, no, no. There's a secret. There's a secret I've discovered. And it's a secret of contentment. And it's apart from physical circumstances. That has to do with, with living in the realm of spiritual realities. Now, it's interesting because Paul was 
a realist. He's not a guy that's an academic guy writing books in an ivory tower, coming up with spiritual theory. He is a realist living one of the most rugged and difficult lives anyone could ever live. And so when we, when we read this, I think we're tempted to say, yeah, that sounds good in the Bible, but not real life. But remember where Paul was when he wrote this. He's chained between, likely, between two Roman guards that switch probably every four hours. He's in a Roman prison that doesn't provide for your sustenance. Um, He has no trial date. He's going to be meeting with Caesar to find out whether he is retained in prison, whether he's released, or whether he'll be executed. And yet, at what we've seen all through Philippians, is this joy that characterizes his life. So there is a secret. The secret is spiritual. Number two. Number two is that the secret is supernatural. So um, not only is the secret spiritual, it's supernatural. So, So what do you mean by this? Well, if you, if you look throughout human history, and we'll talk more about this later, this has been the great search of the human race. Like, we're all searching for contentment. Uh, like, like, what will it take for me to be content? Uh, like, for example, in our culture today, one of the, the great myths of our culture is that the more you have, the happier you will be, Right? Um, it's interesting, and for those of you running the slides, I'm going to be going backwards in just a minute. But um, the, it's interesting because, uh, you know, studies have been done that have been fascinating. They show the more that we have does not increase, like, the, the more you have materially, there's no correlation between your financial, your net worth, or what you have, and your, your happiness, that these do not trend together. Essentially, one of my favorite books that I've read the last few years, uh, I think I've read it three times, it's actually a secular book. It's called The Power of Full Engagement. I've mentioned it before. It's, it's written by a couple uh, authors who are like coaches for Fortune 500 CEOs. Um, and, and I found it super helpful just in, in their kind of, uh, no, I won't go in the book. I have time for the book. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, they talk about this in one part in the book, how each of us has to find our purpose in life. And it has to be an intrinsic purpose, something that comes from the inside, not the outside. And they talk about how money can't satisfy. Things can't satisfy. And so I want to share with you a quote. I actually had it in your note sheet earlier in the week, and then I took it out, and uh, now I'm putting it back in. So we're going to go to the screen for this. And so this is what they said, nowhere are the limits of an external source of purpose so clear as with money. While money serves as a primary source of motivation and an ongoing preoccupation for many of us, researchers have found almost no correlation between income levels and happiness. By the way, this study is, these kinds of studies are like, there's a dime a, there's a million of these studies. 
Between 1957 and 1990, per person income in the United States doubled, taking into account inflation. Not only did people's reported levels of happiness fail to increase at all during the same period, but rates of depression grew nearly, nearly tenfold. The, in, the incidence of divorce, suicide, alcoholism, and drug abuse also rose dramatically. And now they're going to quote another author who wrote a very famous book called The Pursuit of Happiness. And he said, we humans need food, rest, warmth, and social contact, writes David Myers, author of The Pursuit of Happiness. For starving Sudanese and homeless Iraqis, in other words, if you're like really struggling just to survive, think of Maslow's hierarchy, um, money, uh, more money would buy happiness. Like there's a certain amount you things you just need to survive. He says, but having more than enough provides little additional boost to well-being. Once we're comfortable, more money, therefore, provides diminishing returns. The correlation between income and happiness is modest, and in both the U.S. and Canada, it has, it should be now, it has now dropped to near zero, right? And so, so we tend to think that that uh, as a race, we're in pursuit of contentment. As a race, we're looking for what will it be. Like in our culture, especially at Christmas time, right? It's more stuff, the right stuff. Right? And, and we all tend to fall into this. But we also look other places, right? We look, hey, if, like I said, we just had the right people in our life or the right uh, job in our life or the right uh, the, the right uh, popular, we're more popular, or we're just healthier, whatever the thing is, we tend to look to our circumstances. So, so this is an ongoing pursuit of our race, like what is the source of happiness, what is the source of contentment, but here's what I want you to, uh, what I want you to catch. Paul says there is a secret. It is a secret, but it's a spiritual secret, not a circumstantial secret, and you cannot find the secret on your own. Amen. Amen. It's supernatural. Like you can't come to this place of contentment on your own. You can't think your way there. And throughout the course of human history, there have been many who have thought, it's just a matter of my, if I just think about this enough. Maybe it's a, if, I think, if I just have positive thinking. If uh, you remember the book, The Secret, if I just think positive things, I'll change my circumstances. That will lead to contentment. Uh, you think other religions, you think like Buddhism. Uh, the secret to contentment is realizing that all desire leads to pain. And so through meditation, I'm going to rise above that, move beyond desire. And then I'll come to the place of contentment. So our race is in pursuit of contentment, and Paul says, you're on the right track. There is a path to contentment, and you're right, Buddhists, it's not in your circumstances, but you cannot get there on your own. That the only way to find this place of contentment that's not based on circumstance is through a relationship with a person who will strengthen you to be able to see life for what it really is and to give you the power to find contentment even in the hardest of circumstances. And so if you look at this in chapter 4 and verse 11, it starts off and he says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need 
for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. But if you jump to 413, that's the context. I can do all this through what? Through Him. Not a philosophy. Not meditation. Not mental discipline. Through Him. And of course, this goes to the heart of the gospel. To live the lives we're created to live, to be the people they're created to be is much more than just Jesus died for us to be forgiven. That's the first step. But He died to transform us so that we can be the people we're created to be. Christianity at the core is always about a person. It's always about the person of Jesus. It's always about connecting with that person at deeper levels to where the power of the person is released in our life to do things we could never do on our own. It's interesting, you know, I talk about this pursuit of the human race for this secret of contentment uh, outside of circumstances even. Um, And, you know, this has always been a pursuit. In fact, in Paul's day, this was the pursuit This was the claim of one of the most influential, perhaps the most influential philosophical movement of his day, which had been going on for hundreds of years by the time it got there, that it was called Stoicism. And this takes us back to the story of the man at the beginning of the day. We saw him in the villa. Remember the man in the villa with the mosaics and the, the servants and one of the wealthiest influential? This is the story of the man that I introduced to you two weeks ago named Seneca. So Seneca was the most famous and influential Stoic philosopher of his day. And uh, in fact, when, when um, he came to a tragic end, uh, as, I, as I mentioned, what happened is that uh, when he was in his 40s, he was recruited by the emperor Claudius. We're in New Testament times now. It's really interesting. Seneca was writing in Rome at the same time Paul was writing in Rome, Philippians. They were contemporaries. Paul for almost for sure knew this guy, almost for sure knew his rights. In fact, the word that Paul uses for being content in, in chapter 4 was one of the most important words in Stoic philosophy. It was the goal of Stoic philosophy to, to come to a place of contentment apart from your circumstances. Most scholars believe that when Paul uses this word in chapter 4 of Philippians, he's giving a nod to Stoicism and saying there is a way to be the secret of contentment, but it's not through your own pursuit. It's through a relationship with the king. The only Seneca's story is that uh, when he's in his 40s, the emperor Claudius, which is men- who's mentioned in the New Testament, the emperor Claudius Um, kind of recruited him because his wife, Agrippina, uh, had a son. And that son, uh, you may have heard of him, uh, Nero. Does that ring a a bell? Yeah, so so Seneca became the tutor of Nero. Obviously, Nero wasn't a very good student. And so uh, he was still his tutor and his, like his top advisor, one of his top two advisors, after Ciro, uh, Nero became emperor. But after a while, Nero got sick of his counsel and kind of cast him off. And in Seneca's later years, right about the same time that Nero was beheading Paul, 
he became convinced that Seneca was part of an assassination plot on his life, which there's no evidence for this. But Nero's kind of paranoid by this point. And so he forced, this was kind of very Roman, he forced Seneca to take his own life. And so he committed suicide, but when he cut his veins because he was getting older and his circulation wasn't good, it was a little very long and painful death. And as I've shared with you, I've been reading Seneca uh, the last month or so, just enjoying his writings so much, really amazing. But what is uh, was fascinating, like I said, is for Stoics, the goal of life, like what they believed is that if you truly want contentment in life, you have to find it outside of your circumstance because everything else is vulnerable. If your contentment comes from your money, your position, your popularity, your health, everything else you can lose. The only way to find true contentment, what they called self-sufficiency, that you're actually kind of the, the, the good life is to is to really think about life on your own, to think about life and to uh, kind of take the big picture of life and come to a place where you can find contentment apart from your circumstances. This was their goal. And that's the word that Paul uses, this word for contentment. But what Paul is saying is you can't get there just through meditation. You can't get there through self-effort. You can't find this secret place on your own that that coming to this place of contentment only comes through a relationship with the king. And, and when you're in relationship with the king, he can open your eyes. You can experience his presence, his power that can even change a dungeon into a place of contentment because the presence, the power, the purpose, the calling, the future that we have that he reveals to us. And so there is a secret. The secret to discover it is supernatural. But it leads us to this promise, right? The promise of power and this amazing promise. I want you to look at it in 4.13 again. And this is probably one of the most misquoted and misclaimed verses in the Bible. And so in 4.13, it says, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. And you know, so many times in our lives, maybe not your life, but so many times in the history of Christianity, at least in, in my lifetime, I've seen this, so we often claim this to say, hey, whatever you want to achieve, you can achieve it if you just trust and believe hard enough in Jesus. Right? And so it's almost like the Christian version of positive thinking or the attraction or the secret, you know, the, the book, The Secret. It's almost a Christian version that you come up with like, what do you want to do? You want to get straight A's? You want to get into the college of your choice? You want to start a new business? You want to uh, run the mile in a certain time? You know, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. But what I want you to catch is that has nothing to do with the context. The context here is Paul says, I can do whatever Jesus calls me to do and find contentment and peace even in the hardest of times because of him who strengthens me. 
So men and women, your life has purpose. My life has purpose. When Jesus set his eyes on you and called you, you have a purpose for your life. He's got a vision for your life. What's happening in your life right now or yesterday or tomorrow is not an accident. He has a vision for you. He has a calling on your life. You're called to play an important part in this epic story of the gospel that we've been studying. And Paul says, in good times, in bad times, I have discovered a secret that Jesus is able to empower me to carry out his calling on my life. Not my calling, his calling on my life, either good, bad, or in between, whether I'm hungry, whether I have plenty, in whatever circumstance, I have discovered this secret that he can empower me to do whatever he has called me to do. Amen. Yeah. I can do this through him who strengthens me. I can't do it on my own. I can't do it through philosophy. I can't do it through meditation. I can do it through him, the person of King Jesus, who personally gives me the strength to do whatever he calls me to do. Yes. Amen? Yes, yes. That is the promise. And leads to number three. Number three, the secret, and this is the good news, Paul says the secret can be learned. And I love this language he uses here. If you look at 4.11, he says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. I have what? Learned. I've learned. In other words, there was a time he didn't know this. I've learned. Like you don't use that language unless it's a process, right? You don't say, I've learned to play tennis. Yeah, I learned to play tennis didn't mean you roll out of bed one day and you knew. You had to practice. It was a process. I learned Greek. It doesn't just happen. I learned computer programming. I've learned my position. I've learned this about children the hard way. Right? That learning implies process. So Paul just didn't come to Jesus and know this. He had to learn it. Look at 4.12. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to be plenty. I have learned the secret. There is a secret, but you have to learn it. In other words, it's not automatic. In other words, some people learn it, some people don't, some people will, some people won't. There, there's a secret that has to be learned. Now, why is Paul telling us this? Why is he saying, I've learned this? I think the reason is, is because all through Philippians, we've seen this time and time again, Paul is setting himself out as a model, isn't he? We've seen this time and time again, especially from chapter 3 on, but it was there before that he is modeling for these Philippians, here's how to go through suffering. Here's how to look through hard times. Here's how to look through when your enemies are after you. Like, here's how to approach life. He's been doing it, and he's made it very clear. In fact, back in 4.9, just like, you know, last time I was with you, he just said this. Whatever you've heard or you've learned or you've seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace has just said this. Why is he telling us, I learned this? Because he's modeling it for us. 
the Philippians are in a very similar situation. They are, they are being persecuted for their faith like he has. And the whole book he's been telling them to rejoice. And now he's telling them, listen, I know you're going through hard times. Very likely you're financially strapped. You're suffering financially because of persecution in Jesus. But I want to tell you, there is a way to find joy and peace and contentment like the Stoics say, but not the Stoic way. But through a relationship with the king who can empower you that in the midst of persecution, in the midst of financial loss, in the midst of hard times financially, to find a place of peace. There is a place of peace. There is a secret, but it has to be learned. And so the question is, well, how do we learn this? How do we enroll in the school of contentment? And uh, my hunch is we're all in the role. We're all, you know, most of us here are probably in the school right now that probably all of us have learned some lessons about this. Probably most of us have had times in our life, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've probably experienced this where the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to realize that your joy and your circumstances don't have to be the same. That you can even have joy and peace in the midst of, you probably experienced that, right? As a follower of Jesus, at certain times, it may just be a blip, it may not last very long, but you've seen that. And so the question is, how does the Holy Spirit tutor us, mentor us, teach us in the school of contentment? And as I've thought about this, I've thought of at least three different ways. There's probably more. But let me just just kind of throw them out there. One way the Holy Spirit does this is I think he does it in a very direct way, just by opening up our eyes, by giving us peace in the midst of the storm, by giving, taking away our fears. There's times where just by his presence and his direct activity in our life, he reveals this truth. We've probably all experienced this at certain times. I remember, for example, once when I was in college, um, my sophomore year was a time of tremendous spiritual growth. And it was a time, I mean, when I look at my whole course of my life and you say, what are the key periods, like the most important period of your life? I would probably put this time as the most important time. And, and so it was, a, it was a time of like deep spiritual growth, but it was a time where the Lord was asking me to surrender myself in new ways, ways I'd never done before. And uh, if you've ever experienced this, when the Lord asks you to listen and follow, and it's very difficult, and it requires a deep death, and a deep surrender, not my will but yours, if you've gone through a time like that, you know that he never asks arbitrarily. Like Jesus never asks you to surrender arbitrarily. It's always asking you to surrender because there's something in your life that's holding you back from experiencing life to the full. And whenever you die a deep death, it always leads to new life. Always. And so in this particular time, the Lord had taken me through a time of very deep death, but it, it, had, it had a radical shifting in my life. And one of the ways it showed up that was very profound was I've always been, I still am, I'm like so much better now after this experience, but I've always been an impatient person. I know that probably none of you can relate to that, <laughs> but... Like, I'm always, like, thinking of where I'm going and what I'm going to do, and there's something I want to get to. And so, 
I, I do not, I've always hated the mundane things of life. Like I hate brushing my teeth, for example. Now just to set your heart at ease, I do that, but I actually set a timer because I know I will cheat. I hate it so bad, right? So, um, I, so brush my, taking showers, hate it. Um, getting, filling up the car with gas, hate it. Like this, um, some of you are going like, you are so weird. I know, like, like you're like my wife, right? And then some of you are like that, finally, someone is, oh, this is what I'm reading my mail. But um, anyway, so, so this is always, so what happens is when you're wired like that naturally, there's, you're naturally sort of agitated much of the time. And there's kind of a, you're sort of irritable much of the time because you're always trying to get through the mundane so you can get to the things you want to do. And so you're just kind of irritable. And this is sort of my life, right? This is sort of my life. And so, for example, anytime maybe washing the dishes, mowing the lawn, you know, making your bed, anything like that. And it's kind of, it's kind of low-grade irritation. You know, you got to get on with the more important things. <coughs> and here's what I found. Is, what I found is that after this experience of a very deep surrender, that what happened <coughs> is there was a new peace that came in my life. There was a new sense of the presence of God, and what made that happen is I was okay with mundane things. Now, it wasn't, I didn't like them still, it's not my favorite thing, but I began to notice, like I was at my parents' house, I was still, I was right before we were married, and I'd be washing dishes, and I'd be at peace. I had never experienced peace washing dishes <laughs> in my life. You know, there was a new level of peace, and that's never left. That sense of, I'm okay. This may not be famous, but I'm okay. There was a new level of contentment. And sometimes the Holy Spirit can, however he does it, in a very direct way, open our eyes, take us deeper, whatever it is, and you think of it, the fruit of the Spirit, one of the fruits of the Spirit is, is peace. And you can bring a peace where there wasn't peace. And we begin to see, whether it's in the mundane or in some very difficult situation in life you're worried about, and he brings us peace, and you begin to see, hey, there's a way to find peace even in the midst of hard times. And the Holy Spirit just directly opens our eyes and leads us into a new stage of our life. It's a beautiful thing. Sometimes, I think another way that we grow in the school of contentment is sometimes the Holy Spirit lets us run after the things that we think will bring us contentment. Have you ever experienced this? Like, so we go back to the if game, right? If only I could get that job. If only I could get that promotion. If only I could get that person. If only I could marry that person. If only we had kids. If only I could get that car. If only I could take that trip. If only I could retire early. If only I could move out of California. Amen. Uh, like, like we, and the Lord, and what I've seen is that as followers of Jesus, that many times the Lord lets us run after these things for a long time. But what we find is that often once you get those things, that they bring contentment, but for a very short time. Yeah. Have you ever noticed this? That you can't wait, like you're all into that car and you just gotta get that car and you're so excited you get that car and you finally get that car and about two months later, it's just a car. 
and it's dirty, and it has to be filled up with gas, which is really irritating, <laughs> unless you bought a plug-in, right? Um, then you got to plug in it every day, so irritating. Okay? Um, you know, but how many times in your life and my life, if I could just date that girl, or if I could just, if I could just get that motorcycle, Um, if I could just, and you fill in the blank. And have you noticed that sometimes the Holy Spirit's very patient with this. It takes a lot of those. Do you start getting to a place like, I don't think what I'm looking for is in these circumstances. And there begins to be a hunger, Lord, I want more. There's, this, this stuff isn't really satisfying me. Sometimes it happens a third way where the stuff that we thought we, it was so important gets taken away from us. For many people, the path to peace and contentment comes not from getting this stuff, but having it taken away. And all of a sudden, you're going along and you're not even really paying that much attention to the Lord. And all of a sudden, something's taken away. A marriage goes south. A kid has problems. A fire burns down your house. You lose a job. You can't find a job. You, can't, you become, you know, it's like you're, you're priced out of the market. You're, you're aged out of your field. Whatever it is, but there's a tremendous loss, and all of a sudden, it's like you realize you've been climbing a ladder and you realize it's been on the wrong building. And all of a sudden you realize like, wait a second. And you begin to realize what the Stoics widely realized. That when we seek our contentment in circumstances, that it's vulnerable. And you begin to realize there's gotta be something more in life. And it begins us on a search. And it's a search not just for the thing, but a search for the one. A search for the only one who can satisfy that deepest need for contentment and peace in our lives and can give us the power to be okay and the power to cope with whatever life throws at us. You know, this week I read a great quote by C.S. Lewis, and again, it came too late to put in your note sheets, but I want to throw it to the screen right now. But I love this. Human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. Isn't that interesting? Can I tell you, that's not just the story of the human race. That's each of our stories. Like, we each have that story, don't we? I want to say for different people, it's different things, but for, for, for Paul says, no, it's, 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 it's a secret, is spiritual. It's about understanding who God is. It's about knowing who you are. It's experiencing his presence. It's having his perspective. It's understanding your purpose, and it's understanding your calling, and it's, it's, um, it's understanding the future that he has for you. And these are the things that allowed Paul to find contentment even in the hardest time. So all this leads then to an important question. 
And the question is there on your note sheet, the secret and the promise, one key question. And, and here's a question just for you to mull on in your own life. And the question is, what do you believe is the secret to contentment? It's very personalized, very personal question. The person sitting next to you probably can't answer this. And this is a question we often don't think about. What, what do you believe? And, and I don't mean just mentally, I mean in your heart of hearts, what do you believe is the secret to contentment? Because I tell you something, we all have a theory of contentment. You may be in touch with it or not, but if we sat down and talked for a while, long enough, we could find out what is your theory of contentment? Like, what is it that if this, then I would be happy? And we've talked about for different people, it's different things, very different things. You know, like for, for one person, it's possessions, right? Very materialistic, and they're very, like, if I could just, that's never been my thing. There's certain possessions, yes, I can relate to that, yes, I fall on trap, yes, but, but, you know, that person that's just driven by achieving a lot, getting more, buying the stuff, they're just driven by that, that will make them happy, that's never been me. But I've got other things. Your thing will be different than other people's thing, the people that share your thing, but, but your thing will be different. But what is your thing? For some, it is possessions. For some, it's people. It's this kind of relationship or that. If I just had this, for some, it's popularity. If I could just be in the right crowd. For some, it's power. If I could rise to this place of power, for others, it's a certain position. If I, could, if I could just get this position in the company, if I could become vice president. For some people, it's a place, like I've jokingly said, but hey, if we could just move, if we could just travel and see the world. For some, it's pleasure. If I have these experiences to bring me pleasure, that will bring me contentment. But here's what I'm saying, whatever the pursuit is, Paul said, says you're off track. That anything uh, that's circumstantial, that can be taken away from you, is not the secret. The secret comes from within, it comes from a relationship with the one who made you, but not just that relationship, experience of his presence, yes, but it's also his sense of purpose his sense of calling. It's his perspective, seeing things from his life. That for the Apostle Paul, this was a secret that he discovered. And it's the journey and it's the classroom he invites each of us into. Amen. That when we join him and enroll in the school of contentment and ask the Holy Spirit step by step to teach us the secret of contentment and the power of the promise that I can face whatever life throws at me, not through my own, but through the strength of the one who empowers me. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and the beauty of your word and the way it enlightens and challenges and 
encourage us, Father. And I just know in a room like this over in the ridge that we're all over the map. Some of us are placed in our life right now. Just life is going well. We're so thankful. Others are a place of very deep hardship and pain. But Father, thank you that wherever we are, that you're with us. You can give us your perspective. You can strengthen us that we can do all things. And you can speak to us and, and remind us, like the song says, to take courage. And you're with us even in those hard times, and you can empower us. And so we pray you'd, you'd take us to school, you'd enroll us in your school of contentment, teach us the path, the secret to peace. We pray that as we bring our gifts, our offerings, you'd use these to create a place where we can share the message about the one who strengthens us to do all things he requires. We pray this in your name, amen.